0: And over here is kind of like the promised land, you know, that if I could get here, then it would be so much better than over here. Like, I want to quit smoking. And so where's the power to quit, to change, you know? But then when I get into deeper things, like I want to change the things that I love. I want to change some things about me. Is that possible? So we asked this question uh, several weeks ago because in the church, We're guilty of saying stuff like change all the time, transformation, you know, uh, from life to death. You know, we talk about this kind of stuff all the time as if it's commonplace, but I want to pull back the covers for those of you that are new to church and get some of you that have been around for a long time to nod your head. Often, church is the last place we ever see any change. So, we ask the question, when the Bible talks about things like change... Is that a reality? What we discovered was that Jesus doesn't... He's not only the guy who helps change, he's the author of change. Matter of fact, he's not just the author, he's the manufacturer, he's the maintainer, and he is the completer of change. What we even talked about that if we've come to know Christ through his cross and through his resurrection, if I've come to the reality of understanding that he took all my sins for him on the cross... Uh, that I may die with him. But then when he rose, I rose with him to newness of life, that this newness of life is change. Matter of fact, it's already happened. The transformation that we long for has already taken place. And so Scripture says a lot about open your eyes, wake up. Don't you see it? I pray that you would understand. Why does he say all this in Scripture? Because of what we already have. So we went to 2 Peter And we've been reading through this and studying through it to try to understand how do we as a church live in that. So, Joel is going to be our reader today. That's right. Go ahead and applaud for him. Thank you. Thank you. He's gone to school for many years to learn what he's about to do. And uh, so, Joel. His divine power. Thousands of dollars invested so that he may be a good reader today. Yes, Sensei.
1: His divine power.
0: Thousands of dollars. Yes, Sensei. What is in this box? <laughs> we're about is, to show you. All right. And would would you like crazy? me to read
1: that? Are you, you want me to read this?
0: If I opened this box and a tiger jumped out and ate you, would that be the What's most the memorable church of those, service you've ever been You, know you, know what? you do into?
1: remind me of those guys in Las Vegas. What's their names? Those guys with the You know, they're all crazy. Siegfried and Roy? Siegfried and Roy? Yeah, dude. dude that could you're be Siegfried. Us. Yeah, that's us. You need hair. Okay, all right. That's right. Okay. I do. Go ahead and read his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness.
0: Okay, we've got to stop there because, come on, seriously. The Bible just said that if you're in Christ, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. That when we look inside everything, we, it's ours. Do You understand that? So, scripture is either lying or I'm missing something, right? Because why is it that we as Christians, we hear that and we go, is the food truck back this week? Because, you know, we hear stuff like that all the time and we're like, come on, really? So if that's real, then why do we not live in the reality of it? Why do most Christians live impoverished? Why do we spend our lives asking God to give us stuff that he said he's already given us? Mm. Joel, let's continue to read. Shall we?
1: Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world, caused by evil desires. Okay, because what we said
0: weeks ago, you can go back and listen to the series, is that I'm blind to those things until I begin to participate with the divine nature. When I participate with the divine nature, my eyes are open to all the things that I've been given for life and godliness. Matter of fact, everything I need. How do I participate with the divine nature then? If that's so brilliant, how do I do it?
1: For this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith. Stop. So we said several weeks ago that
0: I enter into this journey by faith. Now, we said be careful because faith is not our heaven money. It's not what we manufacture and then we give it to God and in exchange he gives us everything. That actually faith is a gift from God. That God gives me faith. And then I use that faith like arms to embrace all that he's given me. So how do I do that? How do I fan that faith into the
1: flame it was intended to be? We start adding stuff to it. Goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brother- brotherly kindness, love. Love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins.
0: You know, uh, thank you, Joel. That was brilliant. Money well spent. So I want you to imagine that you're in your dream car And you put the key in the ignition and all you hear is ineffective and unproductive. You step back and you look at it and you go, it has such great potential. Ineffective and unproductive. We're going to talk about that next week. But what I want you to hear is what we're talking about is something that's going to mess you up. Because if the engine starts and it starts to rumble, then, uh oh, you got to get in it, right? So I add to my faith goodness, and we talked about how goodness is I don't really understand, Lord, but I'm going to follow you. It's a journey of trust. But then, as I begin to trust Him, then I start adding knowledge to that. And we talked about how knowledge isn't just information, but it's intimacy, it's relationship. Then we said, Now I got to add to my knowledge what self control that self-control starts to begin to realize that I need to build walls for when the insanity comes. It's coming, all right? And then to self-control, what do I add? Perseverance? Go back. Do we remember that correctly? Then perseverance is I'm in for the long haul. Then perseverance, godliness. We talked about how do I live the reality of my faith out in front of this world? Grasping beautifully who I've been made to be, but also grasping beautifully the depths of which I struggle, you know? And then we talked about last week brotherly kindness that when this right here is growing and flourishing, then it always affects this right here. And if you were here last week, we said, Is it really possible that Jesus is saying that you having friends that are closer than brothers, people that you let into here, that's not an option for you on this journey? Matter of fact, the Lord is calling us to have that kind of community. People that come in and help shape and actually touch our heart and change the shape of it. And then this week, the last in the list is add to your brother a kindness love. Oh, what does that mean, to add love? The word there is actually a Greek word, agape. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's a word that is used in uh, John 3.16, for God so agaped the world that he gave his only begotten son. It has a lot of different meanings in Greek as well as in New Testament writings. But what I want us to consider today, is it possible that what the Lord is saying to us through Peter in this list is if you want to participate in the divine, to understand all that you've been given, that in this long list of how I fan my faith into a flame, that the last is that I walk outside that door right there and I love. I love this world. (laughs) <laughs> okay, and in preparing for this this week, I got to tell you that this is the one that weirds me out the most, because some of you know I've got a not-so-grand uh, history with the church. I'm cynical about the church. I, I kind of roll my eyes, you know, when choirs take the stage and robes and all that kind of That's my issue. That's a beautiful thing in a lot of traditions. I know But there are things that give me good merit to be weirded out. I was uh, coming out of the Titans game uh, like a year and a half ago, evening game, and I was walking through Broadway downtown, and we came up on the corner of Broadway and Second, and there was a woman there screaming, uh, you know, save yourself, save yourself, the end is coming. And she gave me this pamphlet that said the world is coming to an end, May, was it the 17th? Was that this last year? If it came to an end, guys, we're in trouble. It didn't. Let's get it. You know, this is all an illusion if it came to an end. And I, you know, and she's screaming and, I, and she's giving it to me and like, I'm a Christian, you know? I mean, that's a requirement for being a pastor. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with it. I'm like, yeah, maybe, but you, and I just kind of want to hide. I want to crawl under a rock. I don't want to be associated. If that's Christian, I don't want to be that Christian, you know, and I just get weirded out by, you know, like door-to-door invasions, I mean evangelism, and like, and even some of the language that we use, you know, we, we use language that seems to alienate and kind of tends to make us into this holy huddle that, that kind of creates this feeling like it's us against them. Like right now, like we're in the locker room right now, you know, and we're putting our game plan together, you know, come on, we can get them guys, you know, they're not bigger than us, we can take them down, you know, and we go out into this world with this sense of I've got to recruit more people to our team. And it seems disingenuous. It almost sometimes seems like the church is just trying to get positioning in itself for power like so many other organizations. One of the things that I really dislike is when it feels like even in church that the people that aren't here are more important than the people that are here. That our whole purpose for gathering is to get more of them in here out there into here. So you guys are just tools by which we're going to use to get them from being out there to getting them in here to make this bigger, better, brighter, and on CNN. With that said, I also live with this vague sense of guilt that I should do more. Do you ever have that? Like, you know... I don't want to maybe, but I but I should do more. I remember this was third grade. Miss Smith was our teacher. She was this beautiful woman who about every three weeks she would say, Randy, come up here. And I would come up and she'd let me hide like right underneath her desk and she would give me chocolate. And then she'd whisper down and go, You're my favorite student. Isn't that beautiful? It wasn't until a few years ago that I realized she was doing that with every student in our class. Like, that's why everybody loved Ms. Smith. She was the best teacher in the world, you know? But she would come in once a year and she would give everybody a catalog, and in that catalog would be All the stuff that third graders would love, you know, like stuffed animals and toys, you know, and pencil sharpeners and the shape of giraffes, you know, and all the stuff that when you're in school, you're like, oh, I've got to have that. I'll do anything to get that. And then when she's got us hooked on the prizes, she comes in next week and says, we're having a fundraiser and all you have to do is go into your neighborhood and sell 20,000 of these magazines. Then you get the giraffe that will sharpen your pencil. And, you know, you hated that. I mean, I'm going to go door to door and sell magazines for my school. All right. Well, let's take a deep breath and let's ask ourselves, what is this all about? What is this love thing all about? What does it mean for us as a community? What does it mean for you as a person? Let's go to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, and let's learn something about this whole love going into the world. It says up here, verse 10 through 12, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away, they they have together become worthless. What this passage is talking about is Paul is talking about that all of mankind is under the curse of sin. When Jesus came and died on the cross, he wasn't just rescuing me from my bad habits. He was rescuing me from a curse that I've been born into. And that curse is the curse of sin that has alienated me from God and blinded me to truth. It's actually so blinded me that it's made myself and living for myself more attractive than anything that God would have for me. And so under the curse, can we put that back up? It says that when I'm under that curse, no one seeks God. So the first thing that I have to understand is that this whole idea that that no one's running in here seeking God. So what happens? Let's keep going. In John chapter 6, verse 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written, the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. Then in 65, it says, he went on to say, This is why I've told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So, Jesus now is opening our understanding to something that everyone under the curse, no one's seeking after God. So, now something begins to to happen. God begins to seek men and women. That God is moving into our culture and he is coming looking. In John chapter 4, it says in verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This is Jesus talking. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father what seeks. So who's the great evangelist? Who's the one that's going into culture? Who's the one that's coming into this cursed world and is moving and shaking and seeking and doing remarkable work? It's the Father. Look at John chapter 6, verse 39. This is Jesus again, and he said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that have come to me and surrendered their life to me and found me a reasonable choice over the other choices that they had in their world, and they prayed a prayer of sin and repentance, and I came into their lives because they accepted me as their Lord and Savior, and then I kind of watched to see how that was going to turn out for them. No, it says, I shall lose none of all that He has given me. Do you hear what's going on? The Father has intentionally given me to the Son. That this is the work of the Father. So, If all that's true, here's the conclusion that I want you to hear Jesus does not need you. Jesus doesn't need Midtown. Let me tell you what's not going to be happening on December the 25th. All the angels are not bringing Jesus a big birthday cake and putting it in front of him, and Jesus is going to close his eyes and say, I wish the church would just get their act together so that more people could be saved. Please, Father. That's not what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is not sitting in heaven hoping that somehow or another you're going to get your act together so that he can do more work in this world. God is going to do his work. Matter of fact, if God could not get what he desired, then he would not be God. Because there would be something greater than God that would prevent God from getting what he desires. If that's true, then why would any of us do anything? This is uh, Leonard Sweet's book, So Beautiful. It's uh, his book, The Divine Design for the Life and the Church. He's an interesting, uh, provocative writer, if you ever read him. But he talks about this profound mystery of God is doing all the work, and yet he allows us to participate with him. A revealing mystery that unveils a God who has an Achilles hill. God is in love with what is fleshly, frail, and finite. God wants to get under the skin of God's creatures, which is why Christianity is a religion always in search of a body. Working for God's wisdom to be fleshed, God's holiness housed in bones and blood. The doctrine of the Incarnation reveals a God who is a sucker for skin, For me and for you, and for me and for you, not having to struggle free of our own skin or put on a second skin of pious garb and purification rituals. God drew near to us not by evaporating flesh into spirit, but by lodging His Word and His Spirit and His wisdom into our flesh. What does that mean? Our God could work in any way He wants to work. I mean... We could walk out of here and there could be an army of lizards sitting in the parking lot saying, Jesus is Lord, if he wanted to do that. And that lizard army could say to you, go back in, we've got this covered. And scatter all across town to preach the gospel, He could do that, right? But he loves inhabiting us. And he loves working through us so that we get the privilege of something remarkable. You know, maybe you've heard the story in the Gospels about Lazarus where this guy got sick and he was a friend of Jesus and Martha and Mary, you know, and he died and Jesus shows up on the scene and, and uh, you know, they're crying and he's dead, you're too late. And Jesus says, roll back the stone. And he sounds remarkably like Carmen when he says, you know, Lazarus, come forth. Okay, You have to have been a Christian for a long time to get that one. All right. And, uh, And so Lazarus comes forth. Then he's alive. He was dead. Now he's alive, and he's in his grave clothes. You know, he's been wrapped up and sealed, and herbs and everything. And he comes, you know, bouncing out of the grave. How I don't know. But when he gets outside the the tomb, Jesus does something remarkable. He turns to the crowd because there's a crowd of people. Because raising people from the dead for some reason attracts a crowd. I know it's. Oh, you guys are really asleep this morning. (laughs) Lean in because Jesus did something remarkable. He turned to the crowd and he said, unwrap him. Why would he do that? I mean, where's the guy in the crowd that goes, hey, dude, you rose him from the dead, you unwrap him. You made this mess. You clean it up. Or if you can raise people from the dead, make those clothes vanish, (laughs) you know, do another trick. And yet he wants these people in the crowd to come. And why? Can you imagine being one of those people? You go running down the hill and you get close and you actually are one of the people that unwrap his face. What do you think Lazarus said? What do you think the first words were out of his mouth? What do you think he smelled like? What do you think his clothes felt like? If that was you, how many times would you tell that story? When you're 80, do you think your grandchildren would look at you and go, Grandpa, tell it one more time. You were there, right? You touched it, right? What did he say? Like, what was it like on the other side? Did he give you a clue? And when you tell that story, Do you think you could ever tell that story and not mention the one who rose him from the dead? Rose him from the dead. Raised him from the dead? Isn't that remarkable? Because when we get to participate, it doesn't become about us. It starts to become about something that's bigger than us. And as we participate, we get to see that the one that's bigger than us has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's why it says in Philemon chapter 1, because there's only one chapter, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. Why? Because the world is going to hell if you don't do it. Because God can't work unless you do it. Because unless you get busy, the church is going to fail. No, I love this. So that you will have full understanding of everything you have in Christ. God is so committed to you opening your eyes to see who you are that He's calling you to participate in what He's doing so that you would fully realize who you were made to be. It's crazy. Because, hey, when we get a dose of the ghost... We long for other people to see, hear, touch, smell, and taste. And you know why we long for that? Because we're selfish, because we want to taste it too. We do. I think about in Mark, there's a story about a man who is demon-possessed. And maybe you've heard this story. He was chained up, but he broke the chains, you know. And, and you know, he's just possessed. And when Christ showed up, when Jesus showed up, and, and the demons are like, you know, son of God, you know, I wish I could do that. And he says, what's your name? And what does he say? Our name is legions. That just sounds like, you know, anyway, video game. And so he says, we're legions because we are many. And you know, Jesus drives those demons out and throws them into a herd of about 2000 pigs and the pigs go over the cliff and they die. Maybe you've heard this story before. Usually, the story stops there for us when we read it. But then it gets a little tricky because all the people in the community are like, wait a minute, okay, you saved the guy, but you killed two thousands of our pigs? You need to leave. You're way too dangerous, man. You consider this man more important than you consider our commerce? You, my poverty is not as important to you as this man who none of us like anyway? Anyway? You know how many sleepless nights I've had with my kids because this guy is up here in the caves yelling like a wolf? And he's more important than my 2,000 pigs? So maybe you've studied that part, and you said that's where the story ends. There's more. Because Jesus is getting in a boat and saying, fine, I'm going to leave. And the guy comes up to Jesus in the boat, and he goes, hey, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. He said, go home to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Where's Decapolis? If you look on the map, there's no town with that name. There's no city with that name. Because it's not a city. It was a region that encompassed 10 cities along the Sea of Galilee. This guy couldn't keep his mouth shut on his way home. And through 10 cities, he went through telling people, This is what Jesus did for me. And in all those cities, people were amazed. So this is where, in the sermon, where I say, if a demon-possessed guy could do that, then you should be able to do that. And I make you feel guilty, and I tell you to go, go tell, you know, shout Jesus. How do we do it? How do we go out there and love that world? How do we quit from being a holy huddle? How do we quit from being a faith that is empty of power? And one that is rich. Well, let me suggest something before we respond in worship Word and deed. That we need to be a community of people that if we're going to agape this world, we agape them with words and deeds. And they should be balanced. Words without deeds is not healthy, deeds without words is not healthy. That when they're balanced together, they bring a great testimony of God's grace. What are deeds? Deeds that we would actually make room in our heart for other people. (gasps) Radical. I'm not getting you, this right here may be the most difficult step for you. That you would make room in your heart for like people that are not like you. Like radically different people, like people of different color. Are people of different culture, people of different religion, people of different sexual orientation, people of different values. That you would make room in your heart for people, many of which are not going to be like you at all. And here's what love looks like when I make room in my heart. I listen. I learn. And I care. Right? Several years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a group of people that began to wrestle with what we're talking about this morning and asked the question, Deed? And I want to encourage you that uh, this is where it gets a little dangerous. Uh, they lived in Philadelphia, and they read in the newspaper that there were a group of homeless people that had moved into an abandoned church in urban Philadelphia. And this denomination that owned this property uh, had decided that they need to get, for liability reasons, they need to get these homeless people out of their abandoned church building. So it kind of became this public brouhaha of this church running a bunch of people out of a building they didn't want in the first place. And so uh, a bunch of these suburbanites uh, decided that this isn't something that we can just sit by and watch anymore. So this guy... uh, and several of his friends grabbed their sleeping bag, and went down and moved into the abandoned church with the homeless people, and said, "We're going to join. We're going we're to join with you to stand for your right for have the dignity of a human person to have shelter." I'm not even sure the building had air conditioning. Like, who could do that? They stayed uh, until this denomination changed their mind, and they let the homeless people stay. That'd be a great story if everybody kind of gave each other a high five and then said, wow, that was awesome what we did. You know, those homeless people are going to have a place to stay. Let's go. We love the world. They got outside the door, and they looked at each other, and then they looked around, and they realized we can't go. They stayed. And they said, we're going to do life here. We're going to do community in this place with this community and love. He started a ministry in inner city Philadelphia. And the guy who started that wrote a book called The Irresistible Revolution. Shane Claiborne, living as an ordinary radical. I want to read you a quote. Um, that he gave while he was speaking to a crowd. He said, I asked participants who claimed to be strong followers of Jesus whether Jesus spent time with the poor. Nearly 80% said yes. Later in the survey, I sneaked in another question. I asked the same group of strong followers whether they spent time with the poor, and less than 2% said they did. I learned a powerful lesson. We can admire and worship Jesus without doing what he did. We can applaud what he preached and stood for without caring about the same things. We can adore the cross without taking up ours. I had to come to the great tragedy of the church that it's not that rich Christians do not care about the poor, but that rich Christians do not know the poor. You see how inconvenient it is? If I'm going to love people that really need love, that want love, it means i got to make room in my heart. And when I make room in my heart, guess what gets pushed out? Me. But when I begin this process of pushing me out, I'm participating with the divine. And when I participate with the divine, I begin to see that I have everything I need for life and godliness. So let me ask you a question. What does somebody do if they got everything? I will wait here for an answer. Give it away? Share it? Nothing? What? Enjoy it ourselves? Want more? Hey, I could give you a sermon on every one of these. Is exactly what Jesus is doing. I want more. Every time I taste Jesus, I want more. And every time he shows me that I have everything I need for life and godliness, I want to give more of it away. And the more I realize how powerful his love is, guess what? I'm not content to sit on the power of that love right here in this room. So it's not just deeds, but it's also words. Words. What are words? Words. Word. Word. This is a familiar passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse 13, he says, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? I mean, come on. You want to help the homeless? You want to care for the poor? You want to put an arm around a friend that's struggling? You know, nobody's going to harm you for that. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. <sighs> there we go. There's where the words are. When anybody ever asks you, hey, could you give me a reason for the hope that's working within you, then be prepared to share the gospel. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever had anybody come up to you and go, would you please give me a reason for the hope that lives within you? We're safe. You don't have to share anything. No one's ever going to ask you that question. Unless, and this is where, oh gee. Unless we give anybody a clue that what motivates us in our lives is a hope that resides so deep within us that it changes everything that we are. Does anybody know that about you? Has anybody ever heard you say, yeah, my faith has really given me strength through that struggle. You smell it? Your faith? What? When I lost my job, it was really my spiritual journey that really helped me have a lot of hope and even joy in the midst of that struggle. Your spiritual journey? What? What? And when I see things that are really discouraging on the news, you know, I have to also realize that there's something good happening. That's what I've learned. What do you smell when you walk into the airport terminal down at the Nashville airport? Does anybody know? Into the food court, specifically? Come on, somebody knows. Cinnabon. Do you think that the Cinnabon people are like, I am so sorry to the other merchants? Do you think that people that walk through the door, they're like, look, I know this cinnamon thing is crazy, but we try to keep the smell in. No, they've got fans in the back of their kitchen, and they're blowing that out, you know, because they know what's going to happen. When I smell it, something triggers in me, you know? I'm just like, "Mm, cinnamon, you know? And the wait could be like three hours. I could be on a diet and I'd still want more of that white stuff. What is that? It's like, I know it's just sugar, but they do something to it. You know, they breathe cinnamon, you know, hope into it, you know? When I bring deeds to the table of my life, I don't Do it because I just want you to think I'm a good person. When I love, I'm not just doing it to build up my reputation. When I give my life away, I'm not doing it so that at the end of the day, you're going to look and go, oh, he's such a great guy, that Shane Claiborne man. He's so amazing. No, we do these things, and we reveal a hope in us so that we look past Shane and we look to the Jesus that he follows. We look past Shane, and we see something that's profound that's impacting his life, that's a hope that we want breathing in us. It's like the Cinnabon. You smell it, and you go, you know, you're not enough to make this kind of smell. I want to know that. But when somebody smells that and they come to you, then we should be able to give words to that hope. And that word is Jesus Christ. See, listen to the words of Cornel West. He said that the country's in deep trouble. We've forgotten that a rich life consists fundamentally of serving others, trying to leave the world a little better than you found it. See, we need the courage to question the powers that be, the courage to be impatient with evil, yet patient with people, the courage to fight for social justice. In many instances, we will be stepping out on nothing and just hoping to land on something, but that's the struggle. To live is to wrestle with despair, yet never allow despair to have the last word. Do you smell the hope in that? We wrestle with despair because as believers that have everything, you know what we're not afraid of? We're not afraid to go into the darkest places. We're not afraid to befriend the most hurting people. We're not afraid to go to the place where the need is the greatest and the cry for love is the loudest. We're not because we have everything. We need for life and God's. But when we go there, we bring hope with us. That it's not hope in us; it's hope in something that's greater than us. See, we're the people that believe in redemption, aren't we? Are we? Aren't we? Aren't we the people that believe that nobody is beyond the redemptive work of Jesus Christ? Yes, we're that, aren't we? Aren't we the people that believe in restoration of dignity? so that people would know who they are, who made them, and what they were made for? Isn't that us? Aren't we the people that believe that God is working all around us? Aren't we those that have been opened our eyes to see that this God is working all around us? And aren't we those that dare to believe that He wants to work through us? Hey, we're the church, right? Right? I mean, we're the transformed ones. We have been transformed. We're the sons and daughters of the king, right? You are more powerful than you realize. And the sad thing is that Satan cannot take away the power that God has given you. He can only convince you that you don't have it and you become ineffective and unproductive in your faith. We say this all the time here. If you go to church, what a glorious waste of time. It is glorious because there's glory. But if you are the church, I can't promise you you're going to get out of this thing alive. Got a letter this week. Because I want you to hear uh, how simple it is. Because I'm going to ask you, you know, Mother Teresa said uh, when she talked about serving in Calcutta, she said, Calcuttas are everywhere. Uh, You just have to have eyes to see them. Your Calcutta may be your roommate that's really hurting and just needs someone just to sit an extra 20 minutes longer. Your Calcutta may be a big Calcutta, like Shane Claiborne. Your Calcutta, I don't know. But I got this letter this week. This is uh, this letter is from Carol Burton. Does anybody here know Carol Burton? A couple people do. The reason the rest of you don't really know her is because she just got out of prison. Anybody else just get, well, I won't ask you that because there are probably some here. She says, my name is Carol Burton, and I just got released from a term of incarceration on the evening of October the 7th. For the past 18 years, I've been struggling with a cocaine addiction and repeated incarceration. End of story. She doesn't deserve anything, right? I mean, seriously. I mean, she's just a drug addict. No, see, we're the ones that believe that we've been forgiven. And because we know the depth we've been forgiven, then we know that we can love those who desperately need the same forgiveness, right? If he can save me, he can save anyone. Although I grew up with a religious background, I drew away from the church and entered into a life that was out of my spiritual element. During my recent incarceration, I found my way back to Jesus and the relationship I desperately missed with Him. I prayed that God would lead me in a direction that is pleasing to Him, and I decided to participate in the residential drug treatment program provided by The Next Door, which is a ministry just a few blocks from here. I asked for a sign that I'm taking the appropriate steps in order that I might draw myself even closer to Him. She asked for a sign. (laughs) While I was being processed for my release from jail, some of the other ladies asked me what I wanted to eat when I reached my destination. You see, when you are in jail setting, there is very little choice in what you are provided to eat. I responded to the ladies that I would like to have pizza and a salad with onions and tomatoes. When I reached the next door, I couldn't help but feel a sense of utter loneliness. I cried myself to sleep the first night. I prayed yet again that God would please reveal himself to me. Let me know that I was in the right place. Then something amazing happened. On October the 8th, one of the members of your congregation, a guy by the name, no, that's my editing, Brother Michael Gilbert, With a group within your church called the Swamp Tigers? What is that about? That's the name of their small group. I told you this thing's going to get weird. They came to the next door as volunteers. I greeted him outside in the parking area, and he informed me that he was there to cook a meal for the residents, and he told me that dinner would be available in the dining hall about 5. I went to the dining hall at the scheduled time and got my plate and proceeded to help myself to the cuisine provided. To my utter amazement, the meal consisted of pizza, a salad with onions and tomatoes. I knew in my heart that God was reaching out to me through Brother Gilbert. Deed, lots of deed, making room gets better. The following week, as I was going through my orientation process at the next door, I was introduced to yet another member of your flock, Miss Catherine Harden. She is my workforce development counselor, and her service to me has been more than exceptional. Ms. Harden shows an apparent spiritually driven dedication to the residents. She counsels at this facility. Word. Out of all the church establishments in Nashville, God sent to me not one but two representatives of your congregation to make me feel safe and secure in close fellowship with them. Does she matter? You bet she does. Why do we know that? Because you matter. Do you matter enough if God says I've given you everything you need for life and godliness that we say to God no you didn't. Do we matter enough to say, show me, Lord? But if he shows you, you're not going to be the same. I promise you. And what's crazy is, is neither will other people anymore. I think the world is waiting for a church to get over itself. And stop trying to be the next power broker on the corner. And start being the people that God has made us to be. But that love, you know what? It falls to people that don't matter. Because they do matter. Yeah? So here's what I want to ask you. Where's God working around you? Where is he saying agape with me this world? I don't want you to be vague. I want you to be really specific. Where is your heart burn as you hear this today? Because if all this was was a good lecture and now you're going to eat lunch, okay? But I think there are a couple in here that says there's a fire burning now. Where is that fire? Don't count the cost yet. Just smell the fire. All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, I know that you tell us that life is a breath, but I don't believe it. I tell you that, Lord, I know we talk about this so much, Lord, that I hear you, that you have everything for for life and for godliness for me, but I don't believe it. I'm so busy hoarding things for myself, protecting myself, trying to build my own reputation, trying to look good. Jesus, rescue me from me. And help me see, Lord, the beautiful, powerful, magnificent thing that you've done in me called redemption and the position that you've placed me in, the position of your son, Jesus, so that I can be generous, so that my friends here can be generous. Lord, I don't want to sit on my deathbed and say I wish I would have risked more. I don't want to come to the end of my days and say I wish I would have taken that love and spread it more. I don't want to waste, Lord, but yet, Lord, We get stuck so many times. So, Lord, I pray that this morning right now, as your Holy Spirit, come, Ghost, and stir in us. Light those fires that we can't put out. Whether it's a person, a place, a group. Set us ablaze, I pray. And help us to come alongside of you so that we can see.